Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10 this morning. Mark chapter 10. Regardless of where we're located today, there's something that binds us together and transcends everything else. It is what we celebrate every Sunday, and this one in particular. And that is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. This historical fact, this enduring truth is the bedrock of our lives and, and hope for the one to come. The resurrection of Jesus is not simply a component of the gospel. It is the main event. John MacArthur said one practical way to see the importance of the resurrection is the church doesn't meet on Friday. In fact, it is never met on Friday because the resurrection is our promised hope, not even the cross. Of course, the cross is part of it. We gather on Sunday to celebrate it, and we, we worship in hope together. I don't know if you realize this, but it is unique to Christianity, a resurrection. To be raised physically, literally, bodily from the dead is a unique promise. Islam doesn't promise that. Buddhism doesn't promise that. There's no such promise even in, in Hinduism or any other world religion. But Jesus Christ promised his followers that they would be raised like him. In fact, the resurrection is so central to Christ's message that the Apostle Paul says that without the resurrection, nothing else in the gospel matters. 1 Corinthians 15, 13 through 17, you probably know it well. Paul said, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. What, what a... What a shocking statement. Your faith is vain. Your preaching is vain. Forgiveness is vain. I mean, your, your mind should go back to Ecclesiastes. Vanity of, of vanities, being empty of, of anything profitable. That's horrible news. But Christ was raised. And because of that, there could be no better news. This is the news that we have. And that's what the gospel of Mark is all about. We preach through Mark verse by verse, but I'm going to take you to a specific passage this morning that I think is going to help you remember the story, his story. Mark is one of the four historical records of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's mesmerizing whenever you see it all put together. You know Mark it goes in very rapid fire. There's 16 chapters, and it's just bang, bang, all the way, all the way through. But from the very first verse, Mark lays out his intention. Listen to Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In the passage that Matt read for us this morning, the Jews said that Jesus needed to be crucified because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And here Mark says the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's no undercover message. There's no hidden agenda. Just a straightforward record about the work of the, of the Messiah. 
The book of Mark has one purpose, and that is to proclaim Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that is good news for sinners. In chapter 1, Christ's ministry is commissioned at, at His baptism. Jesus is introduced in chapter 1 as He steps forward as a substitute for Israel in the wilderness. That's what's happening in the baptism. Yes, it's a pattern for us to follow, but what's happening theologically is Jesus is stepping forward as the substitute for, for Israel. John the Baptist, is God's prophet, is is calling his people to, to repent of their sins. And Jesus steps forward in their place to fulfill all righteousness. And then the Father and the Spirit accept him. There's a voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately after that, his ministry is inaugurated. What's the first step of, 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 of work that Jesus does? It's inaugurated in the temptation. The first act as a substitute is to return where it all fell apart in the Garden of Eden. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness to be, to be tempted. There he is in a desolate place with the evidence of the curse all around him, successfully resisting the temptation of Satan. There he accomplishes what the first Adam tragically failed at. Then his ministry is launched which is to proclaim to sinners that, that they can hide in Him. And He is the suffering servant. He proves that through many miracles. He preaches and He gives evidence that He is the one who was to come. He begins to preach the good news in Galilee. All this is in chapter 1 of Mark. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He spends a year and a half preaching this message. He calls his followers, 12, to follow the king. The kingdom has come, and you repent to get in the kingdom, and then he calls his followers, 12 of them, to follow him as, as king. In Mark chapter 2, he has the power to grant kingdom forgiveness as, as he heals a, a paralytic. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Who can say that other than God? Who can say your sins are forgiven other than God? He creates a new man out of old ones, as he calls Matthew the tax collector, a known sinner. In Mark chapter 3, he, he, he declares himself the Lord of the Sabbath and over the law, and the Pharisees officially turn against him and his message in Mark 3, 6. The twelve apostles are chosen to multiply the message, and he commissions them. He's rejected as a false teacher by the scribes from Jerusalem that they bring up to, to verify what he's doing. He warns them about the unpardonable sin, hardened unbelief. In Mark chapter 4, he describes the reason his message is not being received, the reason that, that thousands are not flocking to him in the parable of the soils. He explains the kingdom will unfold slowly and people will not respond in, in mass. And because the leaders had rejected his message, he says, from this point forward, I'll speak only in parables to the, to the masses. But he gives greater insight to the disciples. He even explains that parable to them. In Mark 5, the, the magnitude of the, of the signs increase. He's, he's Lord over nature as the sea is stilled. He's Lord over the demonic realm as thousands of demons are, are cast into the swine. He's Lord over disease and death as Jairus' daughter is raised. In Mark 6, 
the curtain falls on Galilee as he's rejected in, in Nazareth. And now he'll spend the rest of the next year preparing the disciples for his death and his journey to Jerusalem. In Mark 6, he sends the, the twelve on their first mission, and the message is multiplied, and miracles continue to, to increase in, in proportion. 25,000 are fed with bread from heaven, showing that he's greater than Moses. In Mark 7, he reveals he's the savior of the Gentiles as well as he takes the disciples into Tyre and, and Sidon outside the promised land to preach the gospel. In Mark 8, he formally rejects the Pharisees and, and their generation that refuses to believe in the face of so many signs. And in contrast to that, the, the disciples confess him as Christ, the Son of God at Caesarea Philippi. And he immediately declares what that means. He will build his church upon that truth, upon that gospel. And then everyone who follows him will deny themselves, will die to themselves and follow Christ to the cross. In Mark 9, glory will follow suffering. So he is transfigured before them. It gives them a preview of the glory that's coming. Death and then, and then glory. And so you have... Pick up your cross and follow me, and immediately the transfiguration. And he continues teaching them as, as he marches toward the cross, which is, which is where he's been headed all along. In Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, which is what we're going to look at this morning. Mark 10, 32 through 34, Jesus provides the third and final preview of his death, which is, which is what we're going to look at. Jesus declares that he is going to Jerusalem to be delivered over to the religious establishment who will condemn him, who will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock him, to, to spit upon him, to scourge him, and, and to kill him. Not a really good opening to a recruitment brochure, is it? Follow me, let's go to Jerusalem and die. Follow me and deny yourself and carry your cross. Follow your leader all the way to, to death. That's what's going to happen. But that's exactly why the Messiah had come. And he is in the midst of teaching the disciples about the Old Testament and preparing them for, for this day. He's told the disciples th this exact same thing that we're going to read this morning. Minus one key element, which is why I picked this passage. He's told the disciples twice before... But this one, the third time that, that he gives a preview, Jesus adds something. He tells them that he's heading to Jerusalem. Look, if you would, at Mark 10, 32 through 34. It says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Again, he did this, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. I read that and thought about the, the excitement that people have who, who travel to Jerusalem. I mentioned this before on a return trip from, from Israel. 
The first time I went, the, the driver, as he was creeping up the hill, the bus is slowed because of the, because of the incline. He, he put in a CD. It was a song. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, lift up your gates and sing. Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the king. And, and we all on the bus sang as we were about to enter into Jerusalem. And it was quite a sight as we, we came through the tunnel and it opens up to the iconic view of the, of the city. Well, there was a very different feeling for the disciples whenever Jesus announced for the first time where they were headed on this side of the cross. There was no bus, there was no singing, there was no rejoicing. In fact, the text tells us there was bewilderment and fear because they anticipated something unsettling was about to happen. Jesus was standing on the precipice of the last leg of his mission and, and they could tell. He just got done dealing with the rich young ruler talking about the, the way of true salvation. And you know the rich young ruler rejected it. And then he gives the, the disciples the promise of spiritual riches to not only them, but anyone who, who leaves him, uh, leaves everything that they have and follows him. And, and now he tells them he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to be delivered to the leaders and they'll hand him over and kill him. There are two parts to, to this profound scene. There's the, the introduction in verse 32, which describes how the people are feeling. You have Jesus out front. There are two reactions to what Jesus is doing. There's amazement and fear. And then the second part is the prediction of his death and the individuals who play a part in that in verses 33 through 34. The foretelling of the actors and the actions. And in the end, there's God's, there's God's final outcome. We'll call it three predetermined players in the, the coming crucifixion. That's what Jesus reveals here. There's the rejecting Jews in verses 32, the end of it. And, and then there's the ruling Gentiles, verse 32 through 34. And then there's the resurrected Christ in verse 34. The first group that Jesus mentions are the rejecting Jews. Look, if you would, at verse 32. It says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Stop there. In the story, the, the Lord has led the disciples from Galilee to Perea to Jericho, and now they're beginning the ascent up to, up to Jerusalem. You, you say you're going up to Jerusalem because the city is... 2,474 feet above sea level. And if you're coming from Jericho by the Dead Sea, it's 3,300 feet climb because Jericho is 840 feet below sea level. And there's two important things that Mark wants you to see here. The mentioned destination being Jerusalem and the fact that Jesus is walking out of, ahead of the group. That's what Mark highlights. And as I said, there are three previews that Jesus gives of, of his passion in the gospel. Mark 8.31, right after Peter's confession. Mark 9.31, right after the transfiguration. And then right here, right after the, the rich young ruler. Jesus mentions his, his resurrection, his death, his messianic title being son of man in all three of them. But in the two previous previews, before you get to this one, he's not told them where he's going to die. But here they find out it's Jerusalem. It will be on Mount Zion in the holy city. 
And all of the Gospels are very specific that the disciples didn't fully understand what, what was happening. They missed the significance. They're bewildered even here in, in this passage. But, but they figure it out later. And, and you, you understand the significance of Jerusalem because you're on this side of the cross and you've read your Old Testament. It has to be in Jerusalem where Jesus, the Son of God, will, will die. It has to be there because that's where sacrifices are made, where God said that He'll meet man in His temple, all the way back to the tabernacle before, before the, the physical temple is erected. In Exodus 30, chapter 6, God instructed Moses, you shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony. For in front of the mercy seat, that is over the Ark of the Testimony, where I will meet you. God says He'll meet man and deal with their sin one place. The seat of mercy, literally the seat of propitiation. It's a seat that He has provided, the instructions that, that He gave. In that place, atonement must be, must be applied. In the tabernacle, as God was with them and they were wandering, and then it finally rests in the physical temple. But in that temple, in the holies of holies, there is a, a mercy seat there that sits on top of the, the ark of testimony. And that's where God will, will meet. And the blood of a sinless animal is, is sprinkled between the, the broken commandments of man and the the holy glory of God, representing the righteous sentence of the law had been executed when the blood is shed. And then the changing, by the application of that blood, the changing of it from a judgment seat to a mercy seat. And above that Ark of the Covenant, the, the glory of God hovering, and below that mercy seat, the, the commandments, the broken commandments of man and the blood being applied in between the two. Christ's death must take place in Jerusalem because that's where God has said that, that He would meet man, the only place to be able to deal with his sins. Christ's death also must take place in Jerusalem because of Mount Moriah was was there, where the temple is. It's where Isaac, the, the promised seed, was offered. And, and you know the story of Abraham and Isaac, where God stays Abraham's hand and, and says he'll provide himself a, a lamb in Genesis 22. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt offering in place of his son, a substitute. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And as it is said, to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And Jesus is headed toward the mount of the, of the Lord. Now, God's seed, the seed, the land that God has provided is headed to that very place. He must die in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. The crucifixion will happen also where, where David purchased a threshing floor in Numbers 21 and offered sacrifice when, angel, uh, when David sinned against God. And the angel of the Lord, this climactic scene in Numbers 21 where the angel of the, of the Lord stands with his, with his sword unsheathed over, over Jerusalem. His sword is drawn and, and David sees the, the angel standing there about to pour out God's judgment on his people, and, and, and David cries out to the Lord. And David purchases 
Ornon's threshing floor and offers sacrifice to God. And it is in this very place that the angel sheathed his sword when David offered sacrifice there and God accepted it. He is the reason that God sheaths his sword of wrath toward us when Jesus is offered as a sacrifice in this very place. It's the place the Passover lambs are slain. They're being slain even as Jesus heads to, to the cross because it's where the Lamb of God will die. But all of this is shocking to them. They're not remembering any of these things. They're just watching Jesus out front pulling them along in His, in his will and His determination. They don't fully comprehend the mission yet, which is why Jesus is teaching him. And it is to this place and to this end that Jesus is pressing with tenacious resolve. And Mark is very specific. Jesus is out front leading the, the way. Luke 9.51 says that when the time came, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus was never drag, dragged into Jerusalem against his will. He was never caught up in some political movement that he couldn't control. Despite what waited him there, he moved toward it with determination so much that those traveling with him noticed. Look at verse 32 again. The disciples were amazed. And those who followed him were, were fearful. Here are two reactions to this resolve of Christ. The language is very specific. There are two groups, two different responses to the same to the same act, which is Jesus being out front. The disciples had one reaction, and the, the travelers who were with them had another. And the disciples were amazed, it says, at his determination. Normally, we're told the, the reason for the amazement, or maybe the preceding context uh, supplies it, like when he feeds the 25,000, they were amazed. When, when he heals the, the deaf mute, they, they were astonished. The disciples are regularly amazed by by what Jesus does. But here they're not amazed by, by a miracle, but by His resolute focus. The word for amazement means bewildered. I'm often bewildered when I think about what Christ has done for me. I mean, there are times whenever I talk to God, something very much like this. I don't understand why. Last night, I stood outside on my sidewalk and was looking up into the stars and was talking to God, and I said those words. I do not understand why. Why? We are worms. Why? I'm bewildered by what you, you have done. I'm often bewildered when I think about that Christ shed His blood for me. When I think that God is son not sparing, send him to die, I scarce can take it in. How about you? Notice if you would, Jesus hasn't told them why he's out front yet. He's just out front, but there he is. Pulling the rest of them along in the wake of his resolve, and it, it baffled them, bewildered them. Why is he pressing? Why is he moving with such tenacity toward, toward Jerusalem? There's a change of pace. There's, there's, a, there's an intensity to him. The first words that ever came out of Jesus' mouth in the New Testament were, I must be about my father's business. 
And the last words that ever come out of his mouth before his death is, it is finished. I must be about my father's business and it is finished. My father's business is accomplished. Jesus knew why he came and he knew when he'd accomplished his mission. And here he is pressing toward it because it's not completed yet. It never, it was never a question for the Lord where he was heading. He didn't discover his purpose or his destiny along the way. This was the purpose of his entire ministry. One commentator said before the Romans knew anything about what they would do, before Judas knew anything about what, what he would do, before the chief priests and the rulers and the scribes knew anything about what they would do, before the drama in all of its detail played out itself in history, Jesus knew every single detail that would come his way. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three record three separate times that he informed the disciples about his death in this level of detail. There was no question about what was, what was coming. And there's also no question about what's coming next either. I mean, just because Jesus has ascended into the heaven, there's no question that Jesus is returning. There's no question that God's judgment is coming. There's no question that, there, that heaven and hell are a real place and that you're going to one or the other. He's leading in those with, with the same determination, seated at the right hand of God. And just as Jesus came with a purposeful plan and fulfilled it, He's coming again with the, with the same the same guarantee. And you say, how's that going to take place? How's that going to happen? All I see is, is the daily workings of, of what's on TV and, and getting up and going to work or whatever. How is that going to take place? You're feeling exactly like the disciples, bewildered. I don't know. All of the, the details, where you're going to be or what's going to be taking place whenever Jesus returns. But I can tell you this, He's coming. And believers shouldn't be shocked when, when God fulfills His word. He does exactly what He says every time, and He'll do exactly what He promised, so don't be surprised whenever it, whenever it happens. And we should follow Him, even if we're unsure about, about what He's doing or when it will, it will take place. That's not what unbelievers do, though. Look again at verse 32, the second group. There were also the disciples, they were amazed, and then... Those who followed were, were fearful. It's a second group. Mark mentions the followers. There were more in the crowd beside the disciples. How do we, how do we know that? Well, because he tells us that he, pulls the, he took the 12 aside. So he takes 12 out of, a, out of a larger group. These are likely pilgrims who are on their way to Jerusalem for the, for the high holiday and they're going for a different reason. They're along for the ride. But they could tell something was going on. Even they had a sense. They were unsure, so they just kind of feared. People in the crowd are, are, like, are, are like maybe deists or, or like the average American who might be a God-fearing man, as, as he would call himself, who knows there's a God who may respect and and fear that fact, but he's still on the outside. He, he has no relationship with Christ or the details, but he senses something is different about Jesus from all the other religions of the world. This group, they're not mockers, they're not scorners, they're, they're passers-by, but they're uninterested in, 
in the work of, of Christ. Frankly, they're like the majority of the people that, that you meet. They don't hate God as far as they're concerned. They don't rail against Him, but they're unconcerned about, about who Jesus is or, or what, what He did. They, they just go through life. They're, they're not longing to be able to be in church this morning on Easter and be with everybody else. They may even be happy that, that, that they, get to, they get to sleep in. And their fate is no different than the, than the scorner. You tell that there's something more to, more to life than just this? This group could tell there was something about Jesus that was, that was different. You tell there's something more, there's something lacking. If you pause to think about it, you, you probably can't. And maybe this whole virus thing has you thinking about it like, you, like you, you, you've never before. Do you fear? Like this group, when you think about it? You should if you're outside of Christ. But, but don't be left with fear. Become a follower. And Jesus will share with you everything that He's promised. Look at what Jesus does next. I already alluded to it. Look at how He treats His followers differently from those who are on the outside in verse 32. Those who followed were fearful. And again, He took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to Him. Jesus takes those who are His followers and He shares with them exactly What's going to happen? Do you take comfort whenever you read Ecclesiastes and it explains everything you're going through? Do you take comfort in the fact that when you sit under a sermon, you're like, yes, that, that, that explains what, I, what I'm going through. That makes sense. You realize that's God's gift to you as his follower? He tells us what's coming beforehand. You rejoice in the words of Revelation that tells us what's coming beforehand? The words of verse 32 cannot be said of anyone other than Jesus Christ. I mean, think about this. He took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. I mean, nobody can say that other than, other than Christ. No one knows the future except God. He began to tell them in detail what was going to happen to him. And the fact that he knows this is evidence that he's God and the fact that you're being told is evidence that you're his follower. Spiritual knowledge is a privilege. He doesn't tell those who followed. He, he tells the twelve, isn't God merciful? He calls people to follow him, and then he teaches them, even the ones who are bewildered like these disciples. Do you realize that's a privilege that you have that others don't? Every single Sunday, God takes you aside like the twelve and He tells you what's going to happen in His Word. The church is pulled aside from the rest of the world. It's separated. In an exposition, Jesus is telling you His plans as His friends. You see the church like that? If you don't, you should. It will change the way that, that you approach it. And what he reveals to them is, is the first actors that, that will play a pivotal role when they arrive in, in Jerusalem. Look, if you would, at verse 33. He says that they'll, they'll condemn him and they'll betray him. Verse 33. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. What does he tell the twelve? We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and, and the scribes. 
and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They're going to do two things. They're going to condemn him and they're going to betray him. They're going to betray him because these are God's people. These are covenant people. God is the one who delivers him according to the predetermined plan, but this group will condemn and, and betray. These are the religious leaders of apostate Judaism. Now, this is not all Jews because Jesus is a Jew. And so are the twelve. But there are not many following him. The chief priests were the ones that controlled the temple and the worship system. They, they made up the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians. And they were the ones that he condemned when he attacked the temple. And he, he turned over the money tables that also included the scribes. They were the interpreters of the law, the ones who wrote the traditions. This is the entire leadership of, uh, of Judaism. They'll reject him just like the prophets foretold. He came into his own and his own received him not. What have you done with him? He's coming to you this morning in his word. And you can accept him or reject him. They'll reject him and they'll condemn him to death and he'll be executed by, by the Gentiles. Look at this, this second group. There's the... The ruling Gentiles, the second predetermined players that Jesus foretells about in verse 33. They'll condemn him and to death and they'll hand him over to the Gentiles, the second group. It's the same pattern. The actors are mentioned and then what they'll do. Verse 33, he'll be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. There's the actors. What will they do? They'll condemn him to death. And they'll hand him over to the Gentiles. Here's the second group, the Gentiles. There's the actors. What will they do? Verse 34. They're going to do four things. They'll, they'll mock him. They'll spit on him. They'll scourge him. And they'll kill him. It's a scene of ridicule that builds in intensity. It starts with mocking. After he's turned over as the king of the, of the Jews. They, they ridicule him. They, they mock him. That's what 1 Corinthians says that, that people do whenever they hear the gospel. It's foolishness. It's moronic to them. They mock it. I mean, I need to believe in a man who lived 2,000 years ago who died on a, on a cross to wash away my sins or, or go to the eternal fire pit. I mean, heaven and hell, literal places, how ridiculous. That's what people say. It's the same kind of idea. But I can promise you this, there'll be no mocking when you stand before God who's an all-consuming fire in your Creator and you give an account for your sins. Your mouth will be shut then. They'll also spit on Him, it says. It's a universal sign of contempt. Has anybody ever spit on you? I hope not. It's what you do when you, you, you have derision and you have utter disrespect for somebody. It's a universal sign. It's saying, I don't just think you're foolish. I disdain you. I have no regard for you. That's what everyone who rejects the gospel does spiritually. They trample underfoot the, the blood of the Son of God. That's what I did in my sin. And now I would... would eat the dirt that soaked up my saliva and put it back in my mouth if I could. 
They'll also scourge and, and kill him. Those two go together. Scourging is what was done before crucifixion. The point Jesus is declaring is exactly how he would die. They'll kill me by crucifixion. They're not just going to put me to death. They're going to crucify me. I mean, these are horrible acts beyond uh, description. The Jews scourged with a three-lashed whip, but the Romans added more cords and, you know, put bits of bone and, and metal in the end of the, in the whip. It was so brutal that it takes two men to do it, trading off, because they would get tired. One description says this, death by crucifixion seems to include all the pain and death can have of the horrible, ghastly dizziness, cramps, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, tetanus, shame, long continuous of, of torment, horror of anticipation, mortification of intended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be, they can barely be endured. And yet all stopping just short of the point of, of giving the, the sufferer relief of death. The unnatural position of the cross made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure. The arteries, especially at the, at the head and the stomach, became swollen and oppressed with, with blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there, there added to them the, the intolerable pain of of a burning and raging thirst and internal anxiety which, which made the prospect of death welcome. And yet he knew every single detail. John MacArthur said his suffering was purpose, uh, personally planned by God, recorded in the Old Testament, personally known by, by him in detail through his own omniscience. He knew every bit of it. And thus he lived in anticipation from his birth about this agony long before he ever experienced it. And here he is on the road, walking ahead of them, pulling them all along to this place. And he did it for, for our forgiveness and new life. The third player that he mentions is himself, the resurrected Christ himself. Look, if you would, at verse 34. They'll mock him and they'll spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. It's the same pattern. The actor. And then the action. He. There's the actor. And what will he do? He'll rise again. It's so matter of fact. It almost sounds anticlimactic. Three days later, he'll rise again. It's not anticlimactic, but it is matter of fact. It's a matter of fact, because it's going to take place before it will, will ever happen. In the Garden of Eden, death was enthroned by Adam's disobedience. Now, in, in a garden beside a cross, death is defeated forever by the last Adam's obedience, and his obedience was unto, unto death and death on the cross. This is the final outcome of Jesus' mission. It wasn't just to die, but it was to rise. It's the, it's the final outcome for all those who die in him. We will rise from the dead. Jesus said in John chapter 2 verse 19, destroy this body and in three days I will raise it up. 
And the story doesn't end there. In all three predictions, Jesus ends the story the same way. I found Charles Spurgeon's description helpful. <laughs> he says, my brethren, my text is like a honeycomb dripping with honey. It has in it comfort for the ages to come. There will be a living issue for these dead times. Do you see that train streaming along the iron way? You see it plunge into the cavern, that's the grave, in yonder hill? You have now lost sight of it? Has it perished? As on angels' wings, you should fly to the top of the hill and look down the other side. There it comes streaming forth again from the tunnel, bearing its living freight to its destination. So whenever you see the church of God apparently plunging into a cavern of disaster or grave of defeat, think not that the spirit of the age has swallowed it up. Have faith in God. His truth will be uppermost yet. In the resurrection of our Lord, we see a cavern turned into a tunnel. And the way pierced through death itself. Jesus took a grave and made it a tunnel. He knocked the back out of it. Can you imagine being one of the disciples? Whenever the women came and said they went to the tomb and he's risen, can you imagine Peter and John being one of them coming to the tomb? They'd been with him from Galilee, so they'd seen everything. They'd heard everything by this time. They heard the Sermon on the Mount. They saw the miracles. They observed the healings on the Sabbath. They listened to his preaching and his parables. They, they even experienced his healing ministry themselves. And they believed, supporting his ministry. They followed him to Jerusalem. I mean, even after Mark 9, if you read the rest of the book that you know, they followed him to Jerusalem. They were there when he entered into Judea. They were there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. They were there when he, when he went up from Jericho to the holy city. They watched at the the top of the, the Mount of Olives whenever he, he ascended the cold, according to Zechariah 9.9, made his triumphal entry. They watched him cleanse the temple. They heard his powerful teaching during the Passion Week when the gospel was proclaimed. They, they were aware of his trial, his condemnation. They were with him in the garden. They stood at a distance and hung around while others fled. They watched the crucifixion. They heard the clang of the hammer. They his cries for thirst. They, they listened to the mockery. They, they saw the, the darkness come over Jerusalem. They watched the thief repent. They watched the, the Lord forgive. They, they saw him supernaturally give up his life as he accomplished his work. They were aware that he was placed in the grave by Joseph and Nicodemus. The women saw that. And then they come back to the tomb. And it's empty. And they witness the proof of the resurrection. He said he would die. He said he would rise. And he did. And the rejecting Jews did not discredit him. The, the ruling Gentiles do not stop him. Death has no power over him. He is triumphantly exalted as king over all because he is God. And the Bible says that those who believe his message 
and put their trust in Him will conquer death as well. And that's the good news. The good news is that God has propitiated Himself to you in one place, at one place, it's a cross, the ultimate mercy seat. And the blood of the Son of God applied there, God has propitiated Himself to you. His wrath is satisfied in His Son and in His Son alone. And His Son went in the grave just like you would go in the grave, and yet He knocked the back out of the grave. He turned the grave into a tunnel, so you'll go in the grave and you'll come out of the grave if you trusted in Jesus Christ. And right out of the back of the grave, right into the very presence of the Lord himself. He goes before us. He's the forerunner and the first fruits. And until that happens, he tells his friends all things. It's a privilege to be on the inside and not on the outside. And the final outcome is you will rise with him at the last day. And the sad thing is that if you'll not rise in him on the last day, you'll rise before God's great white throne judgment and you'll stand there alone without any covering before an all-consuming God. And you'll be rejected because you've rejected Him. So great a salvation. Don't reject so great a salvation. This resurrection is what we look for in hope and why we live. And it's the promise that can come to you if you will repent of your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Do you? Father, we love you. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how clear it is. We thank you that only you as God could tell us things beforehand. We thank you that with resolute purpose, Lord Jesus, you went to the cross, shed your blood, we thank you, Father, that you received the perfect sacrifice and you've washed us clean. I pray that today we would rejoice that Jesus is risen and that he's risen indeed. We love you. We thank you that you loved us. And I also pray, Father, that you would remind us of the privilege through this outing, being out of church, the privilege that we have you telling us, your followers, things beforehand. And I also pray if there's someone who is listening, who's never trusted in Jesus Christ, that today they would repent of their rebellion and their sin and trust in Him and His work forever. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Happy Easter.